Welcome to season three of The Complete. This is The Complete, Krzysztof Kieślowski. Uh, Travis, you're going to tell me it's it's Shishtof, right? That's how someone told me it's pronounced. Shishtof Kieślowski. <laughs> it's a, wait, it's Kieślowski? Kishlo- it's Kieślowski, though, right? Yeah, yeah there you Kishlovsky. go. So the first thing everybody should know about season three of The Complete is there's going to be a lot of bastardization of the Polish language. Um, despite the fact that I am mostly Polish, uh, it's it, it dates back at least two generations, but for the most part, many more generations than that. Um, you have a couple of Americans uh, speaking to you here, so there's going to be some Polish bastardization, but we figured we could at least get the name of the director that will be covering this season correct. As long as we get but, the last uh, name. As long as we get the last be. name correct, because yeah. that's what we'll call it. <laughs> that's what I hope. That's what I hope. Um, so anyway, uh, you probably heard uh, some new music there. We've got a new fancy new logo by uh, Doug McCambridge. Uh, thank you very much, Doug, for your wonderful work uh he's out for hire hire ladies That's right hashtag thank doug yes like, let's, let's get, get that, that working going. he deserves um, it yeah exactly <laughs> and uh and we're also part of a new uh podcast network where we are part of the 25th frame media podcast network uh there's a number of great podcasts many of uh, the people who um our host of those podcasts have been on our show. We've been on a few of their shows. Uh, people like uh, Aaron West, who does the Criterion Now podcast, and Cole Rolaine, who hosts, uh, co-hosts the Magic Lantern, are the two people uh, sort of spearheading the network. Um, I think Erica, uh, Cole's wife, is doing a bit of the work as well. She's the, the uh, co-host of Magic Lantern. Um, and uh, we also have... Who, who else do we have, Travis? John have Lobinger. Film Baby Film on that uh, network. Film Baby have, Film, uh, yeah. Good Times, Great Movies, our friend Doug McCambridge. There you go, with Doug McCambridge. And then there's yeah. going to be... And his co-host, co-host yep, Jamie. And there's going to be... A, looks like there's a slew of a potentially new podcasts coming up the line here pretty soon. So it's uh, really exciting. It's a... F- it is. It's very exciting. And so, so you can um, still subscribe to our show... Uh, or you can just subscribe to the master feed uh, of their show, which I of the, of the network overall, which I recommend. I'll be cleaning out my iTunes since I subscribe to all of these shows anyway. I can just put it into one feed. It'll be nice and clean and neat, just like we like it on the complete lined up all in That's a row. That's right. Now our podcast or your podcast apps or your podcatchers. Uh, can spark joy because you're just getting rid of everything that's cluttering <laughs> up your your area. And then the other thing about this is that there there is a Patreon involved in the network. Um, we will have a channel on the main Patreon feed. Don't worry about that. Subscribe to the the uh, the higher level. You'll get every Patreon feed from all of these shows, or at least most of them. Um, and we'll be doing uh, some shows on that. We haven't figured out exactly what that is. If you have suggestions for us, let us uh, know. We, we bandied around ideas like the complete silence, where you just have like two hours of nothing. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's going to fly because um, then we become uh, 
complete assholes and no one would like that (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna do uh we're thinking about the complete of whoever subscribes to our feed basically if you do the patreon we will review every movie that you've made in chronological order on the Patreon feed. Don't make that promise. I've seen some of their short films, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so that that's the uh, that's the house cleaning at the beginning. Uh, I am Matt Gasteyer. That's the final piece of house cleaning. Who are we? Who are you? Anyway, what are you I'm doing Travis here? Trudell, and I'm here to talk about Shushtov Kislovsky. Yes, I nailed it. <laughs> that's going to be the only time in the season that you nail it every other time there's going to be one syllable i literally have all all of our words we're going to use over and over again like school names and people's names i have it written phonetically in front of me so i can't screw it up yes okay that's a good idea i mean the 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 only thing that gives me comfort is that somewhere in poland there's two people doing a podcast on an American filmmaker and bastardizing all of the, the names. That's the only thing I can hope for in order to make this reasonable. They're doing the complete Stanley Kubrish. Kubrish, yeah. Shushbrish. And we've offended everyone oh, in Poland. Geez. Yes, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, and the, I mean, the, the sad part about this is this is our first foreign filmmaker uh, living in England doesn't count. Sorry, nope. Stanley. Um, this is our first non-Jewish filmmaker, by the way. Um, I am I am half Jewish. I'm mostly Polish as well, uh, including part of that Jewish heritage. So basically, this is just a, a tour of my genes. Okay, so you're Jewish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> New. Uh, the other thing we're going to be doing this season is getting a new co-host. <laughs> no, um, so I mean, I, I think you know, I don't want to get too deep into the whole foreign film thing, but um, you know, I, I I did intend this show to be not just about um, mainstream Hollywood filmmakers, um, and also not just to be about Americans, obviously. We've branched out from the Y chromosomes in our second season. I feel like now it's time to get a passport and move on to other parts of the world and see what's going on there. Um, I I don't think we're venturing too far outside of the mainstream, at least in art house cinema. Um, Kieślowski was nominated for a Best Director Oscar at one point, so we're not talking about an obscure director by any stretch. But, um, you know, if you're going to... Uh, delve into film to even a you know second degree below the surface uh, level uh, it's a good idea to to venture out of your language even if you don't know how to pronounce any of the people's names. I agree 100 percent I would also say uh, you know journeying outside the comfort zone but um, I'm comfortable with foreign and art house films but I will admit right at the head of this season that I've only seen a couple of uh, Kieślowski's films. And so I'm super excited to be going on this journey. Um, I've already, you know, just watching a bunch of short films of his uh, to kind of prep me for his uh, features. As usual, we're only covering the feature films. Uh, Feature films we uh, have decided uh, is anything over 60 minutes. Is that correct, Matt? 60 minutes? 
That is correct. So there yes. are some uh, considered features that are 47 minutes, but we don't go by the Academy standard of 45. We go to 60 because uh, <laughs> we'll be touching. We'll be touching on them. But yes, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a good idea to stick with. I mean, if if you went to the movies and you paid ten dollars. Or fifteen dollars, or however much it is now, ridiculous price. And you walked out after forty-five minutes. I think you'd be a little upset. Yeah, that used to fly back when you got a, a newsreel and a, a cartoon right. and a uh, serial. But uh, no, nowadays you got to have three hours. Yeah, it works for a quota quickie, but not exactly for a uh, yeah Marvel extravaganza. All right, now that we've settled that. Um, the other thing I want to talk about with uh, Kieślowski is actually um, uh, related to Kubrick. Um, we we meant we were talking before uh, we started recording about how um, Kubrick wrote the uh, intro to the Decalogue script when it was um, published, and um, one of the things we talked about a lot on the Kubrick season was how he is sort of viewed as a pessimist, as a cynic, um, that his movies are very, have a very negative outlook on humanity and on progress and things like that. Uh, and in, in reality, he's always sort of striving for change for man to improve themselves, to become better than they, uh, than they are. Um, whereas somewhat ironically, Kieślowski is often thought of as a director, especially in his final works, which are his best known, um, The Double Life of Veronique and the Three Colors trilogy, as a director who focuses on the connections between people and the ways in which we can interact and form a deeper uh, meaning in life and uh, sort of, you know, lift ourselves up out of the mundanity of modern existence. Um, when in reality, he's actually a far more pessimistic, cynical, um, you know, s filmmaker with quite a negative outlook on humanity. Um, and uh, I think it's especially clear in these early films that we're going to talk about in, in this episode, uh, just how sort of, uh dark his outlook is well, I mean, um, on the world kind of place him right from his birth 1941 in warsaw poland that is not not, not great. great that is a, that is a bad place to start life in um and yeah he uh he his father moved around a lot his father had a uh, tuberculosis so they were constantly on the move they never settled down they never kind of situated themselves any place um, watching his father slowly die and watching his mother struggle while they moved from town to town. He himself had a, um, he himself was sick quite often with pneumonia. So he was, uh, bedridden quite often and reading a lot. Um, so right from the get go. And then when he comes back to his teenage uh, years and his college age years, uh, going into a uh, communist state in which, uh, there was lots of, uh, problems with the party and uh you know reporting on the party and people spying on each other and everyone getting the raw end of the stick while corruption was uh rampant within the system i'm sure 
this painted a horrible and bleak outlook on what the world can present to you. Um, and so I can completely understand why he was a self-described pessimist. He, uh, he didn't have a lot going for yeah. him. Well, and, and it's reflected um, very much in, in the culture of his country as well. I mean, the, you know, you, you painted, painted the, the, the overarching picture of Poland in sort of modern history from through his mm-hmm. life. Um, but this is, this is, this pessimism is baked into the Polish character from hundreds and hundreds of years of basically just being the, um, playing field for the Austrian empire, the German empire, the Russian empire to grab land, uh, to enslave people, to force them into, um, the army, uh, the Polish language itself was banned for uh, a, a quite a long stretch in Polish, in you know, relatively modern Polish history to the point where it wasn't allowed to be taught in schools. Um, you you had to learn how to read Polish basically illegally in order to um, know your own language. Um, so this this whole and, and Poland as a country essentially didn't exist until after World War I when they worked it out as part of the Treaty of Versailles, only within 20 years to be blown up again by World War II and the Nazis invading, only to have, at once the Nazis were beat, the Soviet Union come in, basically the the west completely abandoned poland and left them to fend for themselves because they didn't want to upset stalin and get into another war and so the, they ended up in a situation where basically until 1989 there wasn't really a poland to speak of uh, it was it was basically a satellite state of the the ussr it was almost pretty much under russian control uh, if not just sort of outright under Russian control. Um, and so, you know, this isn't something you look at, at his, his, his personal history and you say, well, of course he turned out to be a pessimist, but it's almost as if he, he lived the, the life of, of, uh, of the, the Polish history within, you know, his childhood in the sense of just never having a true home, um, and never really, knowing what it was like to feel secure and uh and that's how uh and that's the you know that's the happy peppy oh. opening to our uh season yeah. three of the well, complete you, know, you would say with that long history behind him and the situation he was born into and bred into that uh maybe fate would play a large part in this which is a topic that starts to become more and more prevalent in his later work so um, as he starts to place himself in history and place himself in uh, the history of his people and the history of Poland and his staunch uh, regard for wanting to be a part of Poland. Um, it got to the point where his death was because he was so Polish proud that he refused to get any sort of heart surgery from the world's leading doctors in heart surgery. Uh, he was invited to many different hospitals all over the world to get his heart surgery done. And he says, Nope, I'm a 
salt of the earth pole. I'm going to get my heart surgery like every other Polish person does at the local hospital. And he died. Um, which. Yeah. And they, they, the surgery that they were doing was not an easy surgery. And it was actually uh, equipment that they had never used or they had only recently received. So they were not even used to performing the, uh, the, the surgery that he was uh, undertaking. Um, it's really a tragic story. And, um, you know, the other thing we should point out about the end of his life is that he, he did retire. He claimed that he was going to retire um, after Red. So technically there is a, a possibility that we wouldn't have ended up with, with any more uh, Kieślowski movies. He was writing other movies, and in fact a few of them have been made in, had, were made into movies uh, later on uh, after his death. Yeah, his retirement, he retired, and I think they were, I think in one of the books I've been reading, uh, the news of his ret- of his uh, death came at a, uh, at a retrospective screening of his work, and one of the things the announcer said was, at least we know we're not being robbed of any future films, because he was retired anyway, which was a kind of a bittersweet, bleak look on this poor man's life, but... It was, yeah, you know, <laughs> it kind of fits perfectly into one of his movies. So, totally, yeah. But the, I mean, the other thing is that I, I don't really believe that he was truly retired. I mean, interestingly enough, the, the, I think it was at Cannes, the Cannes press conference where he announced his retirement. Um, Aki Korsmaki announced his retirement at that same <laughs> press conference. Um, so I think that gives you a pretty good idea of these filmmakers. Um, this is a guy who, he was not Stanley Kubrick in the sense of um, make waiting to get his perfect movie, you know, waiting 13 years uh, between a movie to, uh, to make his next film. Um, he, he was filming uh, White while writing red and in post-production on blue that's a habit he got into from uh his youth because when he you know when he was making state-funded uh television and films um because you know in uh, poland at the time uh you didn't raise money and make your own independent project they did not have a studio system like here in the united states um you had to go to the state uh, produce, you know, show them what project you want to make. They gave you the money to make that project. You got to pay a salary. You got the money for the film. You made the film, and then they aired it or shelved it, depending on what level of censorship right. they uh, decided to, <laughs> in, in, uh, you know, forego on you. But he would have two movies going at the same time because he would he would rob Peter to pay Paul. He would take money out of his documentary and put it into his feature because he needed more for that or vice versa, depending on what he needed. Um, and because of that mentality, he was always filming two or three things at the same time to be able to move money around like a shell game and uh, make things work for uh, whichever story he was uh, telling at the time. Yeah, and if you look at the... I mean, his early output is is pretty, uh, pretty steady in terms of just, you know, churning things out. Um, and even, you know, I mean... Kubrick's career that we covered was a 40, 45 year career, I think, 46. Mm-hmm. Um, this, 
this is a uh, you know starting with personnel uh, which came came in in what 78 76 75 yeah 75 70, yeah 75 uh, so we're talking about a 24 year window making the same amount of movies and that's just the features that he made and one by the way one of those features as we're calling it was a 10 episode tv show so Mm -hmm. that he wrote and directed entirely and turned two of them into feature length films so this is a guy who worked himself to death essentially yeah he was uh he accelerated where most people slow down and take their time making their projects as they grow older he just kept on accelerating his velocity right. was growing and growing as he uh moved forward so yeah although i will say rainer Werner fassbender right now is like fuck you yeah exactly i'll show you accelerate how many movies that's nothing hold my beer isn't that the meme hold <laughs> yeah. my beer yeah that's that is that's where hold it my from. cocaine yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth touching on his early documentary, um, work and, and a couple of, of short features that he made. He made, uh, two really short features. The first film that he ever made was, was, I mean, not short features, uh, uh, short narratives. narratives. Yes. Yeah. Um, he, the first, first film he ever made was a narrative film, um, a silent, uh, five minute uh, movie, which actually I think has a kernel of personnel in it. Um, I but, think uh, I think I think he took some of that storyline and put it in personnel for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get into personnel. But yeah, yeah, he made this when he was in film school. When he was in Whoosh Film School, um, for those who look at it and see L O D Z, it's pronounced Whoosh. So yay. That's how. That's the type of level of pronunciation we're going to be going with on this show. <laughs> and this is the second biggest city in in Poland, yep. right? Yeah, and he made Tram, which was it has a very student film, black and white, silent. Um, but there is some there's some nice moments in there. He's got a good eye for detail, and you can see that he focuses on these little moments, which uh, informs his documentary work, and then later really allows him to uh, exploit those uh, little details and little moments in some of his more well-known works, um, you know, just mining the subtleties and small moments that make life uh, more beautiful, the uh, mundane that is beauty. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's fun. It's a good, it's a good little movie. It's, it's, it's uh, for those who are playing at home and want to find it, it's on the uh, Criterion... Uh, Three Colors Trilogy box set on the blue disc. You can also find it on YouTube as well. There you go, YouTube. Um, speaking of YouTube is where I watched the the second of these uh, film school document or fil- films that he made, uh, which is The Office, which is uh, um, okay. the seed of uh, the sitcom later. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, although it could be. It's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about five minutes, and actually, the thing that it reminded me most of was um, Frederick Wiseman documentaries, which um, will come up again uh, in his documentary work postgraduate. Um, but it's basically the opposite of Tram. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, just the the uh, soul crushing nature of the mundanity of uh, regular. Workaday life. Uh, basically, it's it's a 
a commentary on bureaucracy. Um, it's not uh, a subtle movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly effective. Nice. And it gets its message across, um, you know, uh, with a bludgeon, but but for a second movie, I think it's it's pretty uh, pretty well done. And it has a um, it has a sense of humor about it. So I think that part of it was uh, successful and and um, I think shows a little bit more than just purely I'm making a statement with this movie. Well, see, I think uh, a lot of those terms you used for the office can be used for his uh, second narrative uh, short uh, concert of requests, 1967, also on YouTube. Um, this, this, <coughs> this was a film about, it took me a little while to kind of figure out what was going on, but it's like a bus full of high school kids uh, all boys. Uh, you know, there's some girls in there too because there's lots of making out in the bus. The bus driver is really kind of a scumbag older man who's drinking with the kids and calling the students wusses for not being able to down vodka. And then on the, the side story is there's a couple, um, a man and a woman, who are kind of packing a tent and getting on a motorcycle and trying to kind of escape this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's very hit you over the head with uh you know the norm and the bullies and the sexist and the sex and the violence and the the craziness it felt a lot like uh you know don't be don't be a a bolshevik and uh go take off and be free on your motorcycles like uh che Guevara. um yeah it's good it's interesting it like everything as you go through someone's work, you can kind of see how it informs later later work that they did. But it is a total film school, total film school film. You can feel the uh, the roughness, the rawness, and the ideas that are not very subtle, but very, very, uh, very overt. So the next movie he made, I don't think either one of us has watched, which is The Photograph. No. Um, it's a little harder to track down. Um, this was a movie that he made while he was at film school, but it, I, I just totally made a pun, by the way, because this movie is about tracking down two people who were in a photo. Nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, to, um, and uh, th- But it was actually commissioned, um, a commissioned work. Uh, I think it's about a half an hour. I've heard that it's very good and has a lot, similar to Tram, has a lot of... Um, kind of echoes of later things that he would explore um, and a nice uh, humanistic touch. Um, Hopefully, you know, it'll pop up on... I think it is on YouTube, but without um, subtitles. Uh, So hopefully it'll it'll pop up at some point uh, somewhere. Maybe they can stick it on a a DVD uh, release at some point down the road of one of these early uh, films that that Criterion has the rights to that they haven't released yet. Hopefully it gets paired with camera buff or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, That would actually make sense. Uh, So, and so the, the next movie he made uh, is uh, from this, the city of, of whoosh. Good job. Good job. Whoosh, whoosh. I don't know. Anyway, loads. Um, there's loads of whoosh. It's loads of fun. I'm I'm like, we're losing all of our Polish, uh, listeners right now. They're just like, what? Stop making fun of my beautiful language. Uh, so this movie is, is actually really great. And actually the, the, 
the filmmaker that it most reminded me of was Les Blank, uh, mm -hmm. who was making his movies right around the same time. It has this real sort of joyous energy to it, almost like a musical rhythm uh, to the editing. Um, and it, it just, there, there's definitely, um, you know, still uh, pessimism in the film and sort of the bleak outlook of some of these people. You know, there, there's there's a, a bit about factory workers trying uh, trying to maintain the local band uh, from breaking up uh -huh. because they uh, they can't um, they, they don't want you know it's like the one joy in their life is getting to listen to this uh, this Pol traditional Polish music um, and, but it, it, it's uh, I think a really nice film and and I feel like it, it's a big progression from those early shorts that he made um, and it, it was well received enough where he was you know, starting to get actual work as a documentary filmmaker leading into to his next movies, um, which were uh, then, then a couple years later, I Was a Soldier and Factory. Have you seen both of those? Uh, I haven't seen, I haven't seen uh, The City of uh, Woosh, and I haven't seen I Was a Soldier, but I have seen Factory. Okay. Um, and that had a very... A beautiful tone poem type way of going about it where it just juxtaposes the uh the management versus the worker which is a big um you know a big sticking point to a lot of uh uh unions and a lot of uh communist thinking and how uh the worker is the uh is the is the uh the drive of the machine of manufacturing and all that stuff like that and management is the thing that is a kind of uh uh, benefiting or reaping the benefits and rewards of the workers hard work and uh, he really kind of uh, sets that up that tone up uh, between uh, the two types of things because uh, it's 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 these guys in a meeting discussing uh, the profits and discussing the uh, all the ins and outs of the factory that we don't you don't you don't know what they're making until almost the end of the movie um, all they're talking about is numbers and uh, prices and uh, quality control and everything is claustrophobic and tight and smoky and ugly and uh, you juxtapose that with the workers actually uh, fabricating things and the way he shoots it there is a little more wide uh, everything looks more artistic there's a rhythm almost like a ballet a performance to what they're doing in the factory uh, especially when you put it up against the uh the meeting that's taking place in the office and uh it's a it's a great film like i really enjoyed it it doesn't he does not insert any sort of commentary of his own he does not put himself into his documentaries um it's very set up the camera roll choose yeah. the interesting things and put them together uh really in a montage way like really using editing to help tell the story um yeah, and it's a, I think it's a pretty um, apparent story. I mean, especially in this movie. I mean, the 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 meetings that the management are having are so awful. Oh yeah, and they're just like uh, talking around in circles and complaining about things that they're powerless about, and they, you know, are 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 pawning off on other yeah, people. Yeah, Yeah, throwing the blame down the road. Oh my God! It's it's just a total nightmare of a scenario, um, 
and you know, and then you just you cut back to the workers who are just going about this completely monotonous plan, like just work. It's it's a very bleak outlook on the situation, and in fact, that year was a pretty significant year in Polish history. There was a huge strike uh, that uh, came about from the uh, huge increase in the price of uh, basic foods and goods. Um, it was like 30% or something. Yeah, they raised the price and, 30% and people lost their minds. Yeah, and there were strikes and the army uh, came out and actually fired on the strikers and protesters. Hundreds of people were killed. It led to to uh, a substantial amount of changes in Poland. Unfortunately, those changes ended up being a lot of mistakes that were mm-hmm. made that led to even bigger problems down the road, uh, which will get into in later films that uh that Kishlowski made um but here um he's i think i don't think it's necessarily um uh to the degree that he was prescient because i think that it was obvious to everybody what was happening at the time um but that's part of what makes uh this movie and the movie that he made the next year worker 71 um and we'll get back to the other film uh, real soon, but I, I think that's part of what makes these movies so odd because Worker Seventy One, which I think is is probably the first great film that he made, um, it's about forty minutes uh, documentary about um, uh, about workers um, in a in a factory and sort of the process of um, electing leaders and um, basically just their their view their outlook on the the job that they're doing um the fact that the the government gave him money to make this movie he you know they knew what movie that he was going to make that that he came back to them with this movie and they were surprised by what he produced you know I, i think probably there was a fundamental perception of uh okay, you're going to go out there since you're working for us and make us propaganda. But the idea that they didn't think that he would bring back this footage just shows you how great of a disconnect there was between the party and the actual workers on the ground who were who were making things in Poland. Because it's so obvious how frustrated and angry and dispirited and uh, pessimistic these people are um, that all he had to do was turn on a camera and he was going to get you know this response and um, you know they just seemed to have no idea that that this was out there because they really just bought their line um, so so completely um, the other the other movie uh, that that I just skipped over was uh, the I was a soldier Is mm, that what it, yeah that, that was the other called? one yeah um, so, so that's a, that's a short film, um, maybe 10, 15 minutes, uh, about, um, Polish soldiers from World War II. So World War II veterans talking about their experience during the war. I hesitate to say more about it because I think like the first, uh, narrative, uh, longer film that we're going to talk about, um, which is pedestrian subway. There's a bit of a, I hate to say twist because it's not like a Shyamalan kind of thing, but it's more just, uh, 
a unexpected emergence i'll call it <laughs> i know I, I know what you're talking about and i i will i will agree that we shouldn't uh, i have not seen it but i read i read yeah. all these short films i i read kind of like his thoughts on them and what he did while creating them i haven't not seen them all yet still waiting for my disc to arrive from amazon uh and as soon as i do i'll be able to have more uh thoughtful things to say about it but yeah no i agree i think it's something that emerges throughout the dock and uh to talk about it kind of ruins the uh yeah the the unfolding of the story which is very important and very intentional yeah exactly i mean that's the thing he doesn't do it up front for a reason um I think there's still value in the movie beyond that. It doesn't it doesn't rest on that, but I think uh, you know there there's some really interesting camera work and the way that he edits together what they're talking about is really interesting. But I think that choice is probably the central kind of thrust of the of the movie and and sort of what is significant uh, most significant about it anyway. Um, the next movie he made after Worker 71 was uh, Before the Rally, which is a short about a um, Polish auto racer basically it was... not doing well. Yeah, right? <laughs> and it, I think it's really just, again, like underli- underlining the idea that in Poland there is a huge gap between perception of what they can accomplish and what they can actually accomplish purely out of the fact that they are not able to produce the kind of quality things that they would want to produce yeah. because they simply don't have the means to do so. No, their means they they they're starting out at a negative uh, after all the uh, right. after all the tumult and turmoil of uh, being tossed around by different powerful nations. They just had nothing. Even when they rallied together as a country and started uh, to export their goods that they were making, uh, no one would buy them because they were junk uh, compared right. to the other goods that were being manufactured by other countries. And so, like all this money and effort went to, to nothing, which kind of really set them down and made 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 life more difficult for them because now they didn't they weren't creating stuff for themselves to sustain their own lives. They were trying to. Uh, you know, go outward to get money to uh, build in, right. and it didn't work, and so that was a real blow to their uh, society. And saddled with debt, yeah, ultimately, tons of and debt. They weren't able to pay back that debt. Yeah. Um, so he he made a few other um, documentaries, but I think we can we can step forward to um, Pedestrian Subway, which is the first of the uh, narrative longer narrative films that he made. Um, what did you think of this movie? Um, I like this movie a lot. I thought this is a, I, it came out of the gate like a French New Wave type film, where you had this feeling that there was a, you know, it's a teacher kind of going out uh, for the evening, and then you realize yeah. uh, as the story unfolds, like what his mission, what his goal is. Uh, first, you kind of thinking maybe he's just going to try to go and uh, hook up with this girl that he had seen somewhere, right? Um, but then as the story unfolds, you realize he's trying to bring back. Uh, to the country, his uh, wife that has left him, and uh, it's it's very it's very nicely it's it's nicely it's such a, that's damning it with faint praise. Um, it is uh, it is very well constructed. It is constructed in a very interesting way. Um, I like how 
Um, he uses uh, cinema verite type, you know, man on the street with his camera following this guy really through the subway tunnels and the streets, uh, picking up all these weird characters and uh, kind of strange scenarios. And it blends almost seamlessly to the stage stuff that he um, has scripted and he has done. Um, yeah. What do you think of it? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the strongest part of it... Um, sort of unsurprisingly is the uh verite stuff the the almost documentary feel of just this subway station seeing the people in you know 1974 poland milling about or going on their ways um that stuff felt pretty interesting to me and i like your comparison to the new wave because i definitely got a lot of Truffaut Mm -hmm. in here, especially early Truffaut. And the guy feels like a real Truffaut protagonist. Oh yeah. He could, Um, he could be uh, Antoine Donnell. Like that's, yeah. He's got a lot of that sort of male privilege, like uh, self-absorbed. The, the one thing I will say about the script is I, I, I don't, again, I don't think that the twist, um, it feels like a, a gimmick, um, but I I wish there was more to the movie than that twist, and I wish that the sort of conversation slash argument that is the the kind of central uh, climax of the movie was a little bit a little bit less on the nose. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like Bad Bergman to me, where it's like. I guess I what I was looking for was I was really invested in the first half of the movie in the sense of how kind of vague and um, enigmatic it was. And so when he lays all of his cards on the table in the second half, I'm a little disappointed yeah. that there's not more than just a straight. Yeah, I can see that. I think uh, what's interesting about this is... Uh... You know, once again, another state-funded film. They gave him 10 days to film it with a budget of a certain amount of money. Um, Yeah. They had scripted something. They had written a script. They had gone into the subway for nine days, uh, filming each scene, scripting each scene, doing doing take after take, all the standard coverage, all the stuff that he's supposed to do, and he hated it. He saw it, and he hated it. He disliked everything he had done. Everything didn't feel real, or it felt very fake. And on the 10th day, he just went down there with his camera on his shoulder or on the cinematographer's shoulder, and he had the actors improvise everything. He says, we've been doing this for nine days. Just you know the story. Just kind of do your own self. So I think it worked in its favor in terms of having that feeling of the Truffaut verite, kind of like this is all happening and this is just kind of like, but... Because of that, because allowing like very inexperienced actors to take over that narrative thrust, I think they did go over the top and spell a lot of things out. And I think the other thing he learned from this, which I I have no proof backing it up, but from what I see in his future works, is this story has the wrong central figure. Later, right. later, if he would have made that movie in the 90s, he would have made it about the woman and not about the right. man. And I think that's where the strength in that movie is, is in her and her story, because it is a bit of a uh, 
women's liberation type thing where a man is coming to take his wife back home with him after he's had his dalliance and kind of screwed around and or she screwed around on him and he feels like you know okay well i'll take you back now and all is forgiven you can't live without me but how are you supposed to keep her on the farm when she's been in the big city matt <laughs> well the one th one thing i will say about that back end is i do think they left enough open that she could have been lying about the entire thing yeah like that i think that she it's conceivable that she just wanted him to get out of her life mm -hmm. and that would just wanted to hurt him make yeah that would certainly make the movie more interesting to me i mean the other the other filmmaker and film that i was reminded of was uh, abbas kiristami mm -hmm. with uh certified copy i don't know if you've seen that yet but um if the central mystery of the film is whether or not these two people are actually married or if they're having if they're playing a game with each other um and this felt that way at the beginning yeah and i kind of wanted to capture that all the way through to the end um and i it's interesting because i, I think there's <clears throat> there's a lot of kiristami in these early uh, films of uh, of Kishlovsky. Um and obviously I think they they parallel each other in a lot of ways. I think the the their obviously the troubled history of their um, of their country home countries um, and their own difficult relationships with the governments that they worked for. I think underscored just how much they gain skill in slipping mystery and um, metaphor and subterfuge into their films in order to get across their message without actually um, coming out and saying it blatantly. Mm -hmm. And I think as Kieślowski worked further, he got better at that. I Yeah, I agree. I think he's, uh, I mean, when we're, we're going to move up to uh, the feature that is, uh, we're going to talk about and you could see that he has, uh, you know, he's he's wrapped that hammer in a velvet cloth because the yeah. points that are coming across are a softer touch. But uh, I will say uh, just last last bit on this uh, pedestrian subway. Uh, the other thing that I felt had a lot of power in the second half was uh, the scene where they make love, for lack of a better word. Um, she's very specific in her in her. Uh, where her gaze lies and her body language. And I found that to be really kind of uh, an interesting choice because it isn't the nice ending to a relationship. It is a very uh, forced and uh, yeah. kind of disgusting ending to kind of how they, how they end. And um, it's, it's worth seeing it's on Amazon prime. It's streaming. If you have not seen it, it's uh it's worth your time and effort. And it's a, uh, he uh, did he win something? I want to say he won. He yeah, won an he award did. For this somewhere. Yeah. Oh uh, well, maybe just for personnel. Maybe it was for personnel, but I think he got into a festival with this, some local festival that uh, elevated him a little bit higher. This and uh, his uh, next documentary that we've both watched, First Love, um, is kind of what elevated his uh, status even even further into uh, a realm in which he could possibly be making a feature film further down the road 
uh, First Love. If uh, haven't seen Matt, have you you've seen this one, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is a documentary that he made about a uh, a seventeen uh, year old uh, woman who's pregnant and is uh, going to marry her twenty something uh, boyfriend, and they're going to start their life. And it's kind of like a slice of life, cameras held at a distance, and kind of just watching their story unfold um, and all the hardships and troubles that they face um in this predicament in the society at this time um you know the state is the you have to apply for permission to have a, an apartment and so you know they're struggling with trying to get an apartment for uh their child and themselves and so right now they're kind of like painting a room in their grandmother's apartment so they can all live in there together plus there's the hospital visits and him finding work and her the one of the most troubling and horrible scenes is when she's up against her uh her school board um as she's uh reviewing her grades with them and they're giving her grades based on the fact that she's pregnant and right. she's setting a bad example for everyone else. And it's kind of really rough to watch that, uh, that unfold. But she is, uh, she doesn't, she's never apologetic for who she is. She's very defiant to them and says, you know, I don't deserve any of this. And you guys are just pricks. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting documentary. And, uh, it moves all the way to us being in the room with her when she's having the child. And then just, you know, a little bit after when the child is born and kind of like what their life is. Um, so it's a, this was one of the documentaries in which, um, he has said, uh, was the impetus for him to move more into a narrative world because he realizes that if he wants to get really intimate, into a character's life, a person's life, um, it's more uh, moralistic and more uh, humanistic to uh, create it and have an actor act it than to actually pry into the lives of other humans because he felt really bad uh, filming people crying and suffering and having right. a hard time and then putting it on the screen for himself to, you know, be applauded for doing so and he that never sat well with him and this was one of the this and another documentary further down the road uh were the reasons why he has said he decided to just move purely into uh, narrative features and this movie um has fictional components to it or or at least you don't really know what is um manufactured versus what is real there's there is a moment when they're painting the the room a police officer comes in to hassle them and kishlowski has said that he actually got the police officer from down the road and brought him in knowing like that it was like a friendly police officer who wasn't gonna like put them in jail or anything but would just give them a bit of a hard time so he could film the scene. I think that's just an example of the kinds of things that happen in this movie. And um, there's certainly moments here that feel like you really hope that they are scripted because yeah. they're brutal. Yeah. Um, even just the the wedding is, is just... That wedding is heartbreaking. So sad. <laughs> so sad. 
yeah, should the the uh, you just see that everyone is not. This is not the lives anyone wanted for anyone in that wedding, and it's uh, it's almost tragic. And I think you know, watching watching this movie, I watched it twice. I watched it once by myself, and then kind of my wife is a. Uh, documentary filmmaker and she had never seen it so i said you know hey sit down with me and watch this and uh you know we both agreed that the the term first love is not about uh our heroine and hero of the film but it's more about their love for their child which is yeah is you know the important thing and man watching a polish childbirth whew, that was horrible um they were not not very kind not very loving not very caring it was very much no, like it, just shut up and push. You just, it's a rough. It's a rough. Oh, watch. it is. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the the fictional versus non-fictional, um, he has a much lighter touch than Karastami does in something like Taste of Cherry, where you know at the at the end, I'm, I guess I'm spoiling Taste of Cherry. It's not really spoiling. There's there you literally see camera equipment. Yeah. Um, here there are moments where the mic is in the is in the shot and it's pretty clear that the mic is in the shot and you kind of wonder if the mic is in the shot because he wanted the mic to be in the shot um and it does get you thinking about these people's lives and how enmeshed you are And, and and you know i think that there is uh, a very interesting moment in a, in a lot of filmmakers who start out in documentary and move into fictional film. Um, there's usually an interesting moment in their filmography where they you almost feel them working through their conflicted feelings about making documentaries mm-hmm. while you're watching the movie. And this feels like one of them. There's a... Um, there's a Corrieta movie called August, uh, August without him. And it's very similar, even though it's a true documentary, he gradually becomes sort of enmeshed in the subject, the, the central sub- character's life. And the documentary almost becomes about the ethics of that and the process of him trying to take from this person who is sick, um, and uh, then this person trying to take from the filmmakers. And even though there isn't that interaction on camera in this movie, you still, for me at least, you feel that push and pull yeah. and uh, the ethical dilemma of showing this couple and their process on screen. And then add to it the other level of the state says I can film here, so you're going to let me film here. So yeah. I'm sure none of those people in that school board meeting wanted someone documenting their how they are treating this woman. But, I mean, maybe some of them are fine with it because they want to set a moral standard for all the other students. But I'm sure some people are not interested in having their lives filmed this way. Which I know that he said that, like, that scene, the birth scene... And there was like one other where he was able to get in there early, set up lights and sound. So that way, when the moment happens, he could just walk in with the camera and they could just start recording and not have to worry about setting up and missing a lot. And so that's I think that's, you know, and you see in some of his other like even in uh, uh, factory, um, you know, he has planted mics on the table 
um, that are there to record everyone's voices because I think also that was part of the rough and tumble nature of kind of like their world of documentary filmmaking. There was no boom mic guy running around getting all the sounds or lavaliers set up on everyone so they could all be individually wired. It was just set up three planted mics and go for it. Um, But it's crazy. You're speaking of this uh, moral, uh, this uh, moral stance that some documentary filmmakers have to take and kind of decide whether or not they're going to be involved in this person's lives because they are intruding in their lives. Uh, One of the second, one of the secondary outcomes of uh, first love is that he felt so bad for them and the life that they were going to lead that he pitched a second documentary idea to the state wrote up a whole treatment for it. They said yes, and it was going to be him filming uh, the the growth and the uh, life of the baby girl of this documentary uh, that they have and checking in with her every two years so they could mm. then, you know, from that until she's in college was basically his, his pitch. And this wow. was all so he could then say, well, you want them to look like a happy couple and you want their lives to be good, so you should give them an apartment. And the state furnished them with an apartment. He filmed like two years, he said, and then he kind of gave up on that idea because he didn't want to do it because later there's a documentary called, uh, um, what is it, Railway Station? Yeah, that he he his footage was pulled as a state case uh, as evidence. He didn't want any of this information to be uh, used as evidence against the family, against the kids, against anyone. So he stopped filming. But at that point, they already had their apartment and kind of like he was able to just fade away, ghost the whole project and no one cared. And then later in life, they had moved to Germany and they were doing a retrospective of uh, Kishlovsky's work, and he wanted, he insisted that first love be shown, and he invited the whole family. At that point, they were both married uh, with four children. At this point, the oldest daughter being eighteen, and they watched this movie, and they were just—it was such a joy for them to see their life, how it used to be, and kind of all these moments that they had. So. There was a happy story eventually. It just was the long view happy story. <laughs> well, that's great. I, I didn't know any of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's... Um. So uh, the the I think it's the next movie that he made after this was was Personnel. Am I am I wrong in that? Uh, uh there's, I mean, there's a... he made a couple of documentaries. Yeah, maybe there, in between, there's a couple of shorts. there's a lot because he, uh, I mean, one two. Yeah, his next his next movie is 1975 as Personnel, and I think he had maybe one more two more yeah one more documentary. Um, he had Life Story, I know. He had but X-ray. I, I think that may have been sort of at the same time. He had uh, X-ray, The Bricklayer, Refrain, um, and then the other one that he was filming at the same time as Personnel was uh, he was editing Curriculum Vitae at the same time as he was filming Personnel. Right. Um, which is another whole thing. He was very unhappy with that. It was a stage play that he uh, made into a film, and he wasn't too thrilled with the outcome of it. And we we actually didn't mention the fact that he had, uh, I mean, we can get into it in personnel, um, but he had worked as a uh, stage technician. Yes. Um, that was actually the way that he began 
he when he he first uh, applied to film school, this was the job that he got, um, and he he got it through a a distant uncle that he hadn't really even had any contact with, and he had he said some quote along the lines of if if he had you know ha- had a had a salon, I would have been a hairdresser or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, if my um, uncle was a banker, I would have been a banker. There you go. Yeah, his father. Yeah. His father. That's less colorful. His father, I think he he's <laughs> quoted. Yeah, he's quoted as saying something like, uh, "My, I didn't understand my father's genius until it was too late and he was gone." And his father was always working hard at right helping his son be better and. Uh, take care of himself in a lot more constructive way than he did and so you know you know his son was like yeah i'm gonna work i'm just gonna go work i'm not going to school so he says okay sign up for fireman school and like you know he he quit after like three months nope nope and he did he like (laughs) that led him to a whole like anti-authoritarian like bent to his the rest of his life yeah he didn't want to wear a uniform he uh he actually starved himself so he was like almost 100 pounds underweight for his or 60 pounds underweight for uh military service and he went through this whole like pretending to be crazy so they actually labeled him as a schizophrenic psychosis which uh like some crazy like they they gave him like a whole like you'll never serve in the military you're crazy kind of thing and he uh he was yeah it was, for that. it was not 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 a he was not fit for the military even in a time of war yeah so uh he was uh he worked it hard he was not very interested in that and so with this uncle he was gonna get a uh an education in theater arts and he wanted to be a theater director but part of the curriculum was is you also have to have a uh uh, a next level of education as well to kind of support this one so you can move through and so he applied to the uh, Woosh, uh film school and he was denied the first time he applied a second time he was denied again and this is one of his traits that is uh, very telling and is uh, mentioned many times in the in terms of difficulties in telling his stories as soon as he's told he can't do something or is denied something, it makes him want it more. And so he told his mom that, you know, hey, I can't, uh, I got denied the second time. She cried a little bit and says, oh, we'll figure something out. And that just made him resolve in wanting to do this. And he applied a third time. And on this third attempt, he finally uh, he finally got into the film school. Because they, they see something like 300, 400 applicants, and it always goes down to six. So yeah. it's very cutthroat to try to get one of these positions in the film school because part of the film school is once you're out and you've successfully completed film school, you're working for the state in terms of what you want to do. And um, so, yeah, it's pretty cool because, yeah, he has lots of theater background. He was a uh, he was a tailor. He worked in the costume shop and he did uh, uh, costume fittings and seamstress uh, seam uh, seamstress cutter fitters all that kind of stuff so i want to talk about personnel now um i will say uh if because this is a harder movie to see it is available on um the arrow box of the decalogue which is uh unexpectedly and uh depressingly unavailable at the moment i'm hoping that they um repress a non-limited edition version 
so more people can get a hold of it. It's the only place to see um, Kieślowski's other uh, TV features at the moment. On, and, and it's the only place in general to see them on Blu-ray, um, other than Decalogue, of course. Um, so because it's not widely available, uh, we will get into spoilers at the end of this, but um, we, we will start this conversation with just overall thoughts about the movie um, before we, and then we'll have a, a demarcation point. There's not really... It doesn't. It's not like he turns out to be Kaiser Soze the whole time or anything in this movie. But <laughs> yes, he, he does not see dead people. There is there is an interesting ending, and I think it's uh, you know up for interpretation. Um, but uh, with that in mind, uh, what are your sort of initial opening thoughts on on personnel? Um, I I enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I felt it had a lot of. Uh, real interesting combinations of different aspects of his uh, future film styles mixed with his old film style. It has the, you know, once again, it has that kind of cinema verite feel. Um, It feels like partial documentary, like you were kind of like uh, thrust into these uh, situations in this world. And we're just picking up snippets of conversation and ideas and thoughts and watching uh, real life unfold for uh, these uh, workers. Um, This is a story about um, a young man who gets work at a theater company. Um, He's working in the tailoring department, the costume department, and it's his first day. And then we kind of, you know, a success uh, going through um, a successive period of the creation and the putting on of a play opera. It's an opera, I guess, or a ballet. It's not very clear. They're singing. There's dancing. It might be a cabaret. I don't know. Um, it's not really, <laughs> it's, it's most likely like an old yeah. Polish opera. Yeah. It has a bit of, it has a bit of everything. There's dancing and there's singing and it's an old play. Um, but it's, uh, it's about this young man's, uh, growth and change and, uh, learning, uh, education for himself in this world. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, I am a film technician. I work behind the scenes. Um, and the, a lot of the things that they discuss and a lot of the points they bring up are many of the conversations that I have on set as well. Um, so I was very interested in this film. And like I said, it has that documentary feel, but it also has these moments of grace in which he is using the film language to uh, tell something deeper about his characters uh, through blocking and camera positions and uh, camera moves. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, fantastic uh, first film. I can see why he uh, gained a lot of attention after this and was able to almost completely move out of the documentary realm. I think he did some state TV ones because he was made to do them, but a lot of this after after these after this film he is able to more uh, do more narrative features which uh, uh, just increases his uh, abilities and his talents as uh, as he moves forward what do you think of this film uh, what was your general thoughts or impressions of it 
I also really responded to it, and I'm glad to to know that that you had a positive reaction to it as well. I had heard mixed things about this movie. Um, nobody really enthusiastically for or against it. Um, and going in, I kind of expected it to be a bit of a slog, uh, despite its short runtime. It's only about 70 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it didn't feel that way to me at all. It, it felt very alive. And uh, I was sort of immediately invested in this guy, despite his kind of bland oafishness. Yeah. Um, he... Uh, he, he, Kishlovsky doesn't, uh, bring you in through him as much as you get to see, like, his moving around this space and viewing other people. You know, this is kind of the initial. Uh, jump to voyeurism mm-hmm. for him as a director and one thing I find really interesting especially I've been watching a lot of Busby Berkeley recently and there is so much you know obviously in early musicals a lot of them they would just pretend like the musicals were on stage and then the the parts that were not music were the backstage shenanigans of the characters and there's always in film such like a lively bodiness to the backstage goings on. Yeah. And whenever they they follow like the young starlet who's just first got on stage or the writer who weaseled his way into the play or whatever it is, um, you know, I think show people have, you know, a lot of vanity, obviously. That's, like, not a surprising statement uh, by any stretch. But they want to make it feel as glamorous behind the scenes as it looks on screen or on stage. And a lot of times in movies, they'll... It really feels like the razzle-dazzle. And, you know, you feel the excitement of this kid. And he's finally got his chance. And look at all these beautiful actors doing beautiful things. And this movie doesn't have any of that. No. It's very like, oh, there's a person over there and she's wearing a tutu. Yeah, you could you could say that uh, like Fellini and Bergman are very, uh, can be accused yeah. of that kind of uh, focus on the fun and the excitement and the creativity and the energy and the sexiness of being backstage. High drama. But that's the thing. Those people focus on the actors and the actors are super excited to always have something to show how awesome they are. Where uh, Kieślowski is focusing on the workers, um, the people that you know. You watch, you watch, like say, I just watched Fellini's Variety Lights, and you see them move from town to town, setting up their cabaret, and it's all about the actors. You don't see right. like there's there's no one in their troupe that is there to set up lights. To, to do any of the other like technical aspects of the show. You watch something like uh, Fanny and Alexander, and you're watching that whole play get set up and, and performed. And 
It's not about the guys who are setting the footlights or moving the props or lifting up the scenery curtains. It's about the actors. And so it's very interesting that he does make it about the workers, which is a big, uh, you know, a big topic for uh, communist state. It's all about the workers and what the workers do. And uh, there's a lot to be said about kind of like the themes that are playing throughout this under the guise of actors versus technicians right and he's yeah and he's getting very i think he does something very clever with using the theater as a as a um smoke screen for what he really wants to talk about which yeah. i'm sure we'll we'll talk about but i i think getting getting back to this idea of sort of going with the technicians instead of the actors i think he establishes that really early with the a I think a pretty interesting shot, um, especially for somebody who doesn't have a lot of narrative experience, which is, uh, you know, as he's walking in, where he, Schlossky is filming the uh, dancers rehearsing in another room as our uh, main character, who is, um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Romek. Yeah. Um, as uh, so he's he's filming the dancers in the other room as Romek is looking at them and we actually instead of cutting to his gaze uh, and seeing him looking at them he has mirrors being carried in front of the camera reflecting his gaze um, as the mirrors are going by and of course, the mirrors are being carried by the workers. So the mer- workers are, you know, covering up the camera showing the actors uh, and reflecting the camera back onto the workers. Um, and he so it's it's both a very economical shot in terms of getting everything in the frame that you want to get in one shot, but also you know, metaphorically speaking, he's establishing the push and pull pull of the rest of the film. Yeah, that's a that moment is I listed three, uh, two scenes that really kind of stood out as, uh, you know, uh, indicators of further work that he's going to have coming up in the future, uh, in the way that he uh, uses his camera to kind of get us into the mindset of these characters, and that is definitely one of the big ones. Is uh, that scene and it is true it is it is a reflection of what we're going to be seeing and hey don't focus on them we're focusing on this and it is also about him seeing himself looking and we're watching him looking throughout the throughout the course of the film until he actually finally takes some sort of action and then then it moves you know it propels the story forward even further um, but yeah, no, that is a fantastic set piece and it really is bold. It is a bold first beginning thing. And I was, uh, watching this the second time I was kind of saying, you know, what kind of, if this was an American film, like, like what kind of style, what, what was the, what is the tone that I'm feeling that is in this film to begin with and that is caring throughout and, the only thing I could kind of kind of place it under it would be kind of Altman, Altman-esque in terms of mm. people, uh, loose camera style, picking up pieces of conversation here and there from other people, following instead of following 10 characters, we're just following one. 
Um, but it's that same idea of, you know, we're looking at something, but the conversation is in the background that we're hearing or, you know, we're kind of obscured by what's going on, but we're hearing something else that's happening. And yeah, that's the only kind of thought I, I had in terms of kind of like trying to uh, help connect a tone that maybe other people would be more familiar with uh, for this film. Does that does that make any sense to you? Does that? Does yeah, that... it totally makes okay. sense. I mean, I, I, I don't I didn't go there. Um, and, you know, I can I think there's obviously and I don't think you would disagree, like parts of the movie that are very non-Altman, mm-hmm. but I, I think they're definitely, all those things are, are very much present. Um, I mean, I think the biggest difference is there's, there is still one thing I really find impressive about the tone he strikes here is there is still like this magical nature to the movie that, um, he manages to balance the kind of negative pessimism of most of the film with. Um, I think it strikes most clearly in the scene where he's walking through the rafters and he's, you know, they say like being in theaters like flying. Yeah, um, they're they're floating the catwalk up to the uh, higher perms. Yeah. And I mean, it's it. There's something. It, it he manages to still get in that um, feeling of mysticism mm-hmm. that um, that is really strongly present in his later movies, um, despite the fact that this is such a grounded movie. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the rest of the story uh, for people who have seen the movie. Um, is that there is still a lot of documentary content in this movie. Yes. Um, The people who he works with uh, at the theater are actual uh, theater workers, people who make the costumes for uh, the theater. And even some of the people who probably do not come off in a good light in this movie are played by people who have those roles in real life yes um so it's he he's very much flirting with the line between reality and fiction here yep he uh yeah he definitely and and even the actors that he has playing uh characters within the film in which there are actual people that are working but are also playing a part but uh uh, those actors are directors. He didn't want a yeah. lot of actors because the actors he did have cast were the actors in the film. So any of the people that are appearing on stage are actually actors. And you could see, he says, just watching them perform, I couldn't imagine them receding into the background and being a part of the scene. Where the directors mm, really understood yeah. what I was going for. The actors would have tried to stand out. And... The other beautiful thing is a lot of the conversations that they're having, uh, they're bits and pieces of ideas and thoughts that he had to cut from a lot of his documentaries. Because in a documentary, these little tangents which build the world uh, take away from the narrative thrust that you're trying to tightly build in a documentary. Where if you if you go off meandering into uh, world building, you take away from the character building that you're trying to do with your central theme. Whereas in this movie and in narrative films, 
he can have these flights of fancy go off which help build the world and make the characters feel more realistic so a lot of the conversations which uh, i made notes throughout the film i called it shop talk i put whatever the topic was that they're deciding that they're talking about because everything is important like all the topics they're having helps build the world and helps give you a sense of place and time and those were all things that hey, he had to cut out of other documentaries that he made notes for and then took them and put them in this film as his way of uh, filling it out and helping build the uh, society that they all live in. So it's, it's super great. You can see how the documentary feeds the narrative and the narrative is feeding the documentary and it just is a big, nice miasma of awesome filmmaking. Do you, uh, so you're saying that that cat story really did happen. That guy is a real <laughs> is a real seamstress or a real uh, sewing sewer. I don't know. I can't seamster seamster. I can't figure out the actual term for that. Um, but yeah, he was a real one, and that is one of his uh, stories he told. Which you can see everyone kind of oh going, boy. "Oh wow, that's not cool." <laughs> Like the lady that's cooking the eggs and the onions on the stove turns around and is like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It's a it's a really it's a it's a really effective way of uh, populating the story to help support the structure and the style of filmmaking that he's doing, um, which I guess is why I find, you know, when that's the you know when I talk about it i'm talking about like narrative filmmaking style the only person i can think of is robert altman because he's the only one that kind of did that way of filmmaking in which everything was kind of like loosey-goosey you don't know what the camera's looking at and you're kind of everyone's just inhabiting a world and living that way which is which is a really fantastic way of filming and uh yeah i'm looking forward to uh taking that couple minute break and coming back and really digging into uh this film yeah i mean the 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 last thing i'll say is that you know i think we both really like this movie there are a lot of people who who just don't get invested in this story i think a more accomplished kislovsky 10 years down the road could have um made the the these wonderful diversions that you're talking about even more engaging for people um and so you know if you don't find a way into this world uh it's not uh it's not you (laughs) i mean this is this is a loose film um with a with you know it has a real a real narrative drive to it and purpose but um, it's done in a very natural and casual way. So you kind of have to jump in at the right point in the in the current uh, or it could could sweep you under. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that this is worth everybody who's who's interested in Kishlovsky's later work, which is why they're listening to this if they haven't seen this movie um, seeking it out because it, it's definitely worth seeing. I... Um, should we, uh, should we wave goodbye to everybody and uh, who hasn't seen this movie and tell them to meet us on the the other side at episode two? That's right. For those who uh, for those who have never seen this film, uh, <laughs> you know, danger from here on lies monsters. So don't don't move forward. 
because uh, we're going to ruin the hell out of this movie. Speaking of monsters, that monster came out of nowhere, right? Dude, I, mean, uh... I can't even begin to tell you how terrifying this movie turns out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think everybody was going to die, but there they were at the end, all dead. And who would have thought that the theater was run by a coven of Nazi witches? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that could I could really see that being the remake. Um, so I mean, I think the first thing just is, I mean, this is a really dark movie, and I think it's also pretty clear that if this movie isn't like you know entirely about a metaphor for the party and for polish society in general uh it certainly uh go it certainly leans that far enough in that direction that we don't have to pretend that it's not there right yeah no for sure i think yeah the the and it's funny because if the state sponsored this he right. he got them to he got them uh, to showcase the idea of this film and talked about how it's it's basically he could sell it as an attack on the bourgeois, attack on the actors as the as the things that they're they're, they're into this idea of their selfishness and they're not a part right. of the collective. They're into uh, material objects, possessions, and and wealth. And so you use that as, hey, look, we're showing how it's better to be a worker and to work towards something greater than to be this thing. But then he slowly subverts it and you start to realize that the problem isn't the actors. The problem is the system that is set up. And it's you have that through the character of uh, Sawa, Sawa um, by uh, Mikhail Tarkonsky and the lead actor Romek is played by Yuliusz Moholeski. Ha ha. I have everything written down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, the, the characters, uh, you know, you have this subversion of, well, let's, let's take it back a second. Um, so we have our, our lead actor, our Romek. He is going through, and we're, we're seeing everything, not so much through his eyes as we are the characters that he is, but we are watching him watch. And so a lot of the interaction that we have as the audience is watching his expression of how he reacts to what he is seeing. And that happens quite a few times in the movie. The horse being lowered into the courtyard, um, the da- right. the girls dancing, the girls getting changed. Um, you see, you see these moments of I'm I'm a part of something bigger and fantastical, but then they are always peppered and followed with this sucks and this isn't the way it should be and this is horrible. Um, so well, even the horse. I mean, like the the horse is dropping down. And then, and it's it's got this real like um, you know the um, <clears throat> the statue flying over uh, Rome in uh, La Dolce Vita. Oh yeah, 
feeling. It's like this, though, there's this horse being lowered in a courtyard. And then it almost falls on people and kills them. <laughs> yeah, and they go running away they, in terror. Yeah. But you see them all laughing at each other's reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so it feels like you're a part of a secret. You're part of behind the scenes of something. And he really does an amazing job of setting that up early. But he also, uh, going back to your mirror scene... He also sets up really early a class division. He's yeah. called to the office. He walks upstairs and the guy says, nope, this door is for the actors. Technicians yeah. go downstairs. And he is. He goes, oh, but I got a pass. And he's very clear, like, it doesn't matter. We're all in this together. And he's like, no, you're not. You go downstairs. And there's a fantastic shot, uh, which this is, you know, for someone who's just into documentaries, you could tell that he studied films. Um, and it's known he he's he saw Citizen Kane like a hundred times and he was yeah. so into Truffaut. He was so into Fellini. So there's all these like you could see that he's not aping their styles, but he's definitely drawing influence from a lot of their compositional things. So when you have this shot of them looking down the stairs as he's leaving and you've got the actors lined up on the stairs ascending, you've got the musicians off to one side rehearsing, and then you've got a bunch of gray-suited men trying on festive hats. And it's just, you know, you've got the divisions and the different parties and you've got the, you know, the gray-suited men who are all trying on these weird hats and have our backs to the cameras while... The, the actual musicians are working hard over in the corner and the actors are lounging about and you've got this visual uh, separation right there and then that helps you decide like you know what you know helps build that visual language in which you're going to uh, continue to kind of uh, work through throughout the rest of the movie so it's a it is a really interesting uh, beginning and uh, and a great tone that's set throughout um, yeah and he furthers that hierarchy. Um, with the the moment with the painter uh, yes. where he needs to roll out the painting uh, or or um, Romek suggests that he rolls out the painting in order to paint it easier. And the, the painter explains that he can't do that because this is where the actors play tennis. And yeah. it's set, you know, it, it's set up there um, and paid off later on during the kind of heightened... Um, uh, meeting of the technicians uh, later on in the film where you can see through the me the window <laughs> the the actors playing tennis and at one point the ball just rolls into their meeting and they just come in like kids bursting into you know mm -hmm. the the you know f hopping over the fence to the the evening dinner party on the other side. Anybody seen the ball? Yeah. Where's the ball? Well, I mean, it's even worse than that because they're, they, they don't even consider what they're doing important enough to uh, right. respect them and not roll into the room looking for their ball and interrupting their little meeting. Um, yeah. It's... Well, and the most of the technicians get up right away and move their chairs yeah, and, and help try to find the ball. The, yeah. The, the guy actually stops the meeting and says, why don't you help him find the ball? Let's, uh, let's help them. And that's all they're there for is to service these actors to help them while they get yeah. to live their life of leisure. It's a fantastic uh, journey that Romek goes through because as he, you know, and I would say from the readings that I've done about this movie, um, this is the only film in which it is clearly um, a movie about uh, uh, Shushtov Kishlovsky, um, and it's about his life. 
and he's very the the character is very clearly him and yeah. uh very biographical and so you see you know he got the job because of his aunt and he says you should be very thankful to your aunt don't don't like you know embarrass her by doing something stupid and so he has the job because of his aunt and he has the work because of uh, a family member just like he did and he's in the seamstress shop just like he was and you see this division of labor in the shop uh, some people are very friendly to him some people are not and you get to he is not trusted he's not trustworthy uh, the first scene where he's in the shop they're like well, what's our list of things to do? And it's a uh, Sawa and Master Romek, who is the uh, cutter, who's the guy who cuts all the fabric. Um, he says, "Well, don't give him that. That's too important." And then he also says, "And, and Sawa, don't don't tell him anything. Don't don't let him into the what we're talking about here." And it's very clear that he's not trusted and he's not trustworthy. And so he's given crappy jobs, which also probably allows him to wander around and take in the world that we're getting a part of. But because he's also a friend of the family, um, he's taken to lots of like they make him they uh, bring him to watch the scenery being changed, um, which is a special treat. You know, they're like, hey, why don't you change the scenery so he can witness this? Or he would like to witness the dancers, so why don't you take him up to the catwalk so he can watch from above? And so he has this bit of he's not trusted by the workers because he's an unknown element, but he's also given uh, special privileges because he is uh, someone uh, related to this process, which is it's kind of nice. He's got a bit of a foot in both worlds, but at the same time, he's very naive, and he thinks this is going to be magical and this is going to be art. And uh, it's not like that. And that's a very true sentiment uh, in how a lot of great art gets made. It's usually not as beautiful and romantic as everyone likes to right. believe. It was interesting, though, you know, once he, he went through not all of this, because I think his final disillusionment comes at the very end of the yes. movie. But he goes through a lot of this um, seeing Sova embarrassed and um, all that whole process. Um, and then he's still very moved by the experience of being in this theater and seeing this production. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess you could say the one uh, we, we sort of mentioned it at the beginning, but I think the, the one story that we haven't talked about much is the the story of him seeing this girl on the on the uh, bus as he's commuting to and from this uh um theater yeah basically a longer played out version of his short film tram yeah there's a bit of a um a creep vibe there um <laughs> but i think i mean it's not like he's stalking her or anything he's just you know finds her attractive um and there's a but there's, it, there's reciprocal flirtation yes it definitely does there definitely does end up being that and and for and certainly i mean the the that last scene between the two of them um it's not paid off in a that story isn't paid off in a romantic way she's set up almost like you don't really even know why this part of the movie is in the movie um, like, is he going to end up with a girl at the end or, you know, what is this, where is this headed? 
and she's really paid off as the sounding board for his um, passion for this work um, and you know she uh, represents less of a sort of romantic partner or a uh, a ideal of any kind than she does the average um, Polish person who doesn't care at all about the theater and is not is completely divorced from this world that he's enmeshed himself in yeah like you yeah she is definitely she's definitely set up with this expectation and then the expectation is subverted by it being a moment where he can finally be honest about his feelings about what it is he's engaged in at work which is the creation of art and then he gets to explain you know I love this. Like the, the lights go down and then the curtain comes up and then the lights come up. And that is a, that is pure magic. And that is the same. Like when I asked my child what her favorite thing about going to the Somerville theater was, she says, I love it when they raise the curtain, and then the movie starts. And that's, that's that, that's that moment of being, uh, giving in, and giving of yourself to an experience and to a world and giving into the fantasy completely. And that's something that he still has the, even as he's gone through all this horrible or this just mundane or bitchy or catty world that they're in, in which there's lots of disappointment and disillusionment. um, It's still worth it for the end end goal for him until there's one more section and then you can see that this is probably the final straw for him in terms of uh what kind of life this uh this has and what we can hold off on that last little bit until later but um i want to know what you thought about um just his relationship with sawa what kind of what, what was your thoughts about that i think Sova is, is, you know, it's clearly set up as the older version of him. The fact that he came in all dewy-eyed and ready to um, make some art and realized that these people were just as shallow as the people that he rejected in order to go into the creation of art. Um, and I... I think Romex saw the um, the fact that 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 this guy was really, you know, doing his job, and that this, in a certain way, was the final straw for him, and he was being disrespected in the work that he was doing, and he feels like this is the moment that he has to stand up for basically himself um his future self and say you know this is like we're here to all do good work right and obviously they're not actually here to good do good work and sova knows that and these other people don't want to talk about it yeah they want that makes him crazy yeah they want to keep their heads in the sands and just do whatever it is and so they can go home it's a job it's a it's factory work at this point for them and uh sava is sova is uh he is artistic and he wants this to be better 
he wants things to be greater for this thing. He still, as much as he is disillusioned and doesn't like buy into a lot of the stuff, it's because he sees that it, there's a problem that should be solved and there should be a greatness to what they're accomplishing. And that is the individual speaking out against the system. And the system is set up to keep everyone at their level, doing their jobs, and not moving forward. Because once you have that individual idea that this should be greater, this is not working. There's a rot. There's there's a rot in the theater. You know, he's directly addressing the party. There's rottenness in this. We're just doing the same old stuff we've done before. Yeah. We're not taking chances. We're not moving forward. We're just, just. But, but I don't think he would have made that statement if he hadn't been embarrassed. I mean, I think that ultimately he was, uh, he was just like everybody else, ready to put his head down and do the work, um, you know. And he saw in Romek like Romek saw sort of a father figure, like he certainly saw uh, somebody he, who he could take under his wing, which is the reason why he sticks up for Romek in the first place when the cigarette explodes. Um, because he doesn't want him to be exposed to this nasty side, or at least he wants to put it off as long as he possibly can because yeah. he wishes that he could be like that again yeah um and, no and i you know the, it's the moment that he gets called onto stage and embarrassed in front of everybody is the moment when he really you know i think has that that last straw no i agree i agree completely um it's yeah because you had uh for those who have seen this film but if you if you haven't and you're still listening uh what happens is uh you know, uh, they, Sawa and Romek are charged with uh, costuming the lead singer for the uh, the, the production. And uh, he is self, self-involved. Uh, they're sitting there trying to dress him. And all he's talking about is his fancy shoes that don't stink. Which makes me laugh because his shit, his <laughs> shit don't stink. Um, you know, there's all kinds of sly little bits of jabs of humor in here that I really enjoyed. Uh and then, you know, as Romek is finally has the like Romek has not said more than two words in this entire film up into this point. And there's a point where all these all the tailors are um, costumers are telling a story, each telling their own story. One's telling a ghost story. The other one tells a creepy story about uh, summoning a demon wind by burning and eating a cat. And then Romek steps up and t- starts telling a ghost story about this time in the cemetery. And the actor leans in and starts to mock him and ask him questions and steal the attention away from the worker. Um, and then just adds insult, adds more insult by offering him a cigarette, which is a trick cigarette and explodes in his face. Sawa does not like this and kind of stands up to him a little bit. Um, and then the, the guy that's even ahead of all of them, the cutter... Uh, Mr. Cutter, they call him, uh, Master Romek. Uh, he takes one of those cigarettes and lets it explode in his face too to try to diffuse the situation and to be like, oh, this is all fun. Don't worry, everything is okay. And you can see that he's probably been doing this for a while now because anytime Sava is uh, asked to do something, he, 
Mr. Cutter has to come along behind him and smooth things over with management uh, to the point where he, you know, the boss won't even come out and have a drink with them because Salva is the one who goes and gets them. Uh, Cutter has to go in there because it's his birthday and, you know, come and have a drink with us. And that's the only reason why. Um, So it's it's, it is it's it's really interesting watching uh, watching him finally have that moment to uh, come out and talk and be a part of the crew and then to have it stolen away from him by the uh, by the actor who's just totally uh, mugging and wanting to draw the attention away for himself. Um, and then that has a lovely echo later when they're up in the rafters and he's watching the uh, dancers perform and you see one of the actors uh, petitioning one of the electricians to help him rewire an electrical heater for yes. his room, which I will tell you, 100% I am every job I've ever worked on someone in the upper end of the production is asking me to wire something fix something light something <laughs> or uh, create something that'll solve a problem for them not with having any idea of how valuable my time is but for them it's something that's very important so for him to sit there and petition the electrician <laughs> and then he offers the electrician a cigarette offers <laughs> Romek a cigarette and Romek goes no thanks. No thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm all set. Yeah, I thought that was great too. <laughs> so 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 Sova, you know, sort of um, lashes out after he's t- been told that uh, you know he didn't do a, a good job. Well, first he's been told he didn't do a good job by the the uh, the production uh, people in front of everybody. Uh, but now he's being told he didn't do a good job by his representatives uh, in the technicians. And he lashes out. Um, and, but Romek has proposed this idea of doing a, uh, is it a salon or a cabaret? Cabaret. A cabaret for, uh, for everybody to basically um, get together and rediscover the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, yeah, Everybody exactly. would be happy. And uh, they bread, bread sort of humor him. Bread and circus. Yeah, so they humor him on that. Um, but then they want to talk to him afterwards. They tell him about, you know, they're going to get him a good uh, house to live in that's closer to the theater. He's going to be part of management. It's going to be great. Yeah, you um, won't have to commute you know, anymore. Yeah, yeah. He, But he's, he's sort of um, not sure what to do about it. Um, He's given a pair of glasses, and he can see yeah. clearly now. He can see yes. clearly. <laughs> a little, a little, a little over the top. And the other, yes. the other thing is that as he walks into this final meeting, um, you can see the mirror, and he's he is uh, that that we saw at the beginning of the movie, and it's reflecting um, on him as he's walking uh, into this meeting. And uh, this is the moment where you know. I think Kishlovsky shows his true colors of just you are, this is a shitty life and you're going to get shit on all the time. Yep. Basically. <laughs> I mean, he's put in this, basically put in this situation where he has to throw Sova under the bus or he's not probably not going to be able to work in this theater. No, they dang they, this. That's the scene where they dangle the carrot in front of him, which right. is the slippery slope of corruption. 
uh, oh, well, you can be a manager, and oh, we'll take care of you, and you, you can get these perks for being, you know, because you're going to be the guy running the cabaret, so it's important that you have all these nice things that help you to run this cabaret, and then that's his management. That's his representatives giving him all this. And it says, so you should have a meeting with the boss, the management. You should go to the theater director and talk to him, which is crazy because that theater director in the last scene was the theater director director. of of that place. That's pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, they basically ask uh, Romac to – he's just basically telling half-truths and lies to Romac about – uh, Sava, and he's asked them to, oh, just write down your side of the story. Just write it down. And if anyone has watched any <laughs> like reports on a party or uh, the confession or any of these types of uh, you know uh, stories about uh, communist oppression and reporting on each other, you know that this is not going to end well for anyone if he writes anything down on that piece of paper. Yeah. All it's going to do is end with as evidence against someone to do whatever they wish with them. And uh, it's a really dark ending because he's left alone in the room with a pen in his hand and the blank piece of paper in front of him. But there is a really nice moment where you see him put the cap back on the pen and then it cuts to credits. And but then it comes back. And it comes back. Because this, <laughs> this is where Kishlovsky's pessimism comes flying right in your face. Because it's far enough away that you don't really know what he's yes, doing. Yes, and there's some light streaming in through the window. And it's so you can't see and what he's doing. it's kind of doing. obscuring him, yeah. But I will say, he flips the paper over and continues whatever he's doing. <laughs> which is pretty clear that he's filling both sides of this piece of paper with information. Which is really, really sad. Yeah, although you could say that, you know, you don't know what he's writing, technically. No, you don't. Um, but it's, I mean, there's no there's no good outcome here. He's not going to uh, convince them of the errors of their ways, and then he'll go on and everything will be this, the same as it was at the beginning. Yeah. It's clear, pretty clear that this is, uh, this is the end of somebody's line. Uh, whoever it is, yeah, he's um, all he's all grown up now. He's uh, he's he's buying into the he, he is he either is or is not. But either way, by sitting there and writing in that piece of paper, he's yeah. buying into whatever system he's a part of now. So we have a lot of um, grand tragedies ahead of us mm-hmm. on this season. Um, so I I don't. I don't think we need to get extreme in how dark this film is because there's plenty more where this comes from. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> this is and much worse. Uh, this is a this is light toast compared to the yeah. dark toast that happens when you crank that thing to seven. Yeah. Um, so, but but I do. I mean, it's not every day you see a movie about the rot of the theater. Um, mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss to compare this to other things. I mean, there's certainly bleak movies out there about movies or about the movie industry. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the player and things like that, but. Stuntman's um, another one that comes to mind. Yeah. And I was trying, um, I was trying to think like, 
this was on state television. Like, there was nothing like this in American television. Like, no. There was nothing of this quality and of this level. I, I know yeah. that there's some stuff that was there, but it was all genre-specific stuff that was on our televisions. There was nothing yeah. talking well, you think about, I mean, the, Yeah, because like, you think about, I mean, Berlin Alexanderplatz in the 80s and, um, and Decalogue. Um, they... they there was definitely more ambition from um, from TV yeah. in Europe. I mean, I think the other thing about Poland is that uh, the theater, the film theater, was not very uh, widespread. So TV was the way that a lot of people got this, uh, you know, got this type of entertainment. Yeah. Um, but it is remarkable that they would produce something like this, this bleak. Um, and that speaks so pretty clearly to the corruption and rot in the overall system. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes down to the fact that there is a tradition of art like this in Poland, Polish society. So this didn't seem like it was out of the norm and it also didn't seem like it was so pointed um and uh spoke so powerfully to contemporary politics even though it did yeah no i i and the other thing that uh happens with this type of with with this like very cutting and uh telling kind of uh message that is being sent is you know he played it to his favor as well uh kishovsky would would go to the person funding these movies that were like, ooh, I uh, read the script. Uh, this kind of is too much uh, say against this. And he would say, well, this is good because we just had a regime change and a party change. Right. And if that happens again, you can point to this film as, see, no, I was, I was talking about how bad the other party was. So uh, that regime was horrible, and this is my proof for it. So he was playing both sides of everything. Like he was, he, he was very cunning in that way, that he would, you know, use use these uh, these works as ways to kind of like help other, like tell the other people that you know, no, my message is good because it'll help you later when the party changes again and they look to oust everyone. You can say, no, I was on your side all along. Look at these movies, right. and that's that's crazy that that was kind of the. Uh, the atmosphere in the world that they were living in, that that was something that was in consideration in telling these stories. Um, but no, I, yeah, what you're saying that, that the darkness is there, but it's, 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 it's interesting. There is no most movies about the background of theater or movies is always about the talent. It's never about the workers. And that's I found that I think that was my connection to this so clearly was there's many scenes in this where I can completely and totally relate to in my everyday workings. Um, You know, there are the people that are just there to do their job and go home. They don't care. They're not like when a director comes in, it's just like, okay, guys, we're going to, you know. This is this is you know we want to achieve this vision and you know for art and and you're just sitting there going yeah man I I got to go home tonight because I need to see my kids play tomorrow so 
I really don't care about your vision right now. I just want to punch the clock and go home. Yeah, it is. It is a hard. It is a hard thing to kind of understand. Uh, whenever I give lectures about this or talk about this with students, I said the hardest part about moving out into the film world is realizing that it's a job, and it's not everything that the movies have told you it is everyone's not pulling together sometimes we do sometimes we definitely all work together to achieve something but sometimes you know we're raising our hands and taking a vote and saying nah we're not going to finish this scene today we're going home and it's really disappointing to some people to find out that it's not like that yeah and it gets harder the bigger the projects you work on or sometimes the bigger but cheaper the projects you work on like it's just you get uh, disillusioned pretty quickly and uh, you just have to keep a, a sense of humor about it. And that's, yeah. that's the only way. To well, nobody wants, through. nobody wants to see the magic, how they do the magic trick. I mean, you think you do, you think like you'll, you'll learn everything, you know, the whole secrets of the universe will open up if you just know how this magic trick is pulled off. But then you find out how they did the magic trick and you're like, Oh, there was a cut in the card. Really? That was the whole thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not as interesting at all. (laughs) It's funny. It's a, it is, it's, it's a super, it's a super weird thing. And I think it's, I think it was so cool to see something that explored the worker's side of the world. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's relative, it's, it's theater and it's not film, but I know plenty of theater people and I know their lives in the backstage and having to deal with actors who are self-absorbed and it's all about them and they're the reason why we're there. And if it wasn't yeah. for that person, then, you know, there's that scene where Sal was called onto stage to show this, this shoddy craftsmanship of his costume and he's taken to task for it by the lead actor and the lead actor turns and rips his costume <laughs> And Salva just turns around and rips his jacket. And it's a see, anyone can do that. No, no one. You know, and the actor just gets more steamed about it. Yeah, it throws off his stuff and starts singing. Yeah, I, yeah. And you pull back to this super wide, and he's like all by himself in the middle of the stage, exactly how he wants to be, but no one's paying attention to him. A it's, toddler it's, having a temper tantrum. Oh, it's so many times. I've been on. I've been on sets where I've you know actors are just screaming and railing against something and the whole cat the whole crew is just rolling their eyes or just looking at their phones just waiting (laughs) for it to be over so seeing this actor do that you know he didn't take the fitting seriously at all he didn't care about this or that he was mad about being in the second cast and so he decided to take it out on a craftsman and the craftsman is just tired of it you know and he tells it in the meeting he says it doesn't matter it's my jacket he rips or it's going to be your set he leans against he's looking right. for an excuse he he doesn't care about us then none of them care about us and then to punctuate it the ball comes rolling in from the tennis court next door and yeah. the guys walk in and it's a uh, it's it's amazing that this you know he was so you know, for being such a young age, he was so dialed into that concept and then able to use it as a backdrop to tell the bigger story about uh, party lines and the corruption that is in the system to uh, that they're all working in. It's it's, you know, I think for people who are write this movie off as kind of like lesser or not as interesting or kind of bland, I it's you have no idea how truthful this movie is. And it's 
it's it speaks to so many levels of reality and the reality of the creation of this you know for every person that sits there and says you know office space is the funniest movie ever because it speaks about all my office experiences i've never worked in an office (laughs) so i have nothing to relate to any of that stuff i still find the movie funny but maybe not for the same reasons this movie is like a laser beam directly at me and yeah well when i watched it i was like oh okay (laughs) <laughs> I can't wait to talk to Travis about this one. Yeah, it's 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 great, and yeah, I I highly I highly recommend it for everyone. I mean, yes, it, it is not technically going to be like he he just gets progressively better, and this is really rough, but it has a charm and it has a style yeah. all its own that you can see his documentary influences popping right through. And he uses it to his advantage. He uses his strengths as a documentary filmmaker to his advantage in his first narrative feature. And And it feels very loose uh, on a first viewing. But on on a second viewing, um, everything has a purpose. There's nothing here that, uh, which is not to say, like, you you know, you wouldn't expect a 70-minute movie to have a lot of digressions. uh, But it, it... the 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 way that he drifts to other people's conversations and to other stories and it's you know you you only kind of follow the the main actor through overheard conversations and side shots um but it's all there and everything that is happening is 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 all tied into that overall narrative drive so it's uh yeah it's a i i was very pleasantly surprised by this film i think um it deserves uh, a close look from from anybody who's interested in kishlovsky's work yeah this is a far cry from stanley kubrick's first film yes that's definitely true although of course kishlovsky had a, a a lot more filmmaking under his belt um and and a lot more money to to throw at this movie than than kubrick had to throw yep. at his first film um, so this is obviously the best feature that Kieślowski ever made up to this point. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think okay. that is the it is the best That's one. Fair. In in the same way that I'm the best boy in my family, I'm the <laughs> only one. Ha <laughs> ha. You're also a best boy, right? I'm ha. <laughs> double entendre. Good job, man. <laughs> Well, you know, I am Jewish, so I... <laughs> You've got that going for you. Uh, so we circled all the way around, back around to this, this conversation. Well, I thank you, everybody, for uh, sticking with us through this uh, intro episode, and I hope you guys stick, wh- stick with us through the rest of the season. We're going to have uh, other people talking, so it won't just be Travis and I rambling on. And um, I hope you guys can follow along with uh, with these movies because there's a lot of special movies coming up there's a lot of movies that i haven't seen either travis so we're gonna especially this first stretch here um i haven't seen anything up until blind chance so wow um that's a good you know what three four movie run here that we're gonna get into that uh, is. so i'm excited to um have some some new discoveries i'm 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 super excited like 
like everything, and I've said it before in other episodes, uh, part of my joy of all watching all these films is being able to discuss them so thoroughly with you and our guests because every time we talk about them, I get a deeper appreciation of anything I watch, whether I like it or not. Um, talking about it and discussing it uh, always helps me uh, process and have a a deeper understanding of the thing I just watched. And usually I come out of it with uh, the desire to watch it again, which I think is a success in any film story. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next few films. And, uh, you know, for those playing the home game, um, they are kind of hard to find right now. Um, at the time when we created this show, uh, this idea, and we set up our list, um, three of these films were easily and conveniently on Filmstruck, but that is no more. So uh, some of them are going to be kind of hard to track down. So if you are looking, uh, you know, scour your library systems and your uh, ebays and whatnot if you want to participate um because i think it's uh, i think it's worth it this is a very worthy uh, director to kind of uh, uh explore yes there is there will be a blackout period for um our next film which is the scar um along with camera buff and no end those three films are uh available on dvds that are out of print um, but can be found fairly cheaply yeah. um, if you look around. Um, and like Travis said, uh, they are also available from the library, which is where we will be watching them. Yes. And uh, so we'll, we, we will come back uh, next time with The Scar um, and, uh, and a, a very special returning guest. Are you uh, excited for The Scar, Travis? Uh, you know, I have a few scars, and so I can. <laughs> that's probably, all you know about the that's movie. That's all right? I know about the movie. I don't know <laughs> what it's actually about, but uh, hopefully, we'll we'll actually watch it and read a few things about it before uh, we come on here, and um, instead of just babbling for two hours, let the, the scar. Yeah, it was very s- scarring. I guess <laughs> I was uh, scarred while watching this. <laughs> that's my mispronunciation of scared because it was also oh, scarred yeah. as well. <laughs> We should we should mispronounce more American words just to to balance out. The Shkar? <laughs> Ishtar. Ishtar. We talked about that movie too. All right, let's well, get let's get out of here before this gets really bad. Well, with that, we're complete for another week. Twenty fifth Frame Media dot com, a listener supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.